Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking. Go to ATXFestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, videos versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to atelevisionexperience.com, atelevisionexperience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017. So uh, first up, we've got uh, Ryan Condal from Colony. That was the easy name. And then he told me backstage that somebody messed it up at the last festival. So I was like, ah. Uh, and uh, from Unreal, Sarah Gertrude, Gertrude Shapiro. From Casual, Xander Lehman. And from Underground, Joe Pekaskey. Hey, everybody. You guys Hello. all got mics, right? Hey. Hi. Hello. Hi, first Ed. of all, congratulations to everybody for making it through the first season. Thank you. And probably more importantly, being picked up for the second. Right? Thanks. I've done these panels where people have been here and their show hadn't been picked up yet, so it's a little awkward. Yeah. So, good. Congratulations. So, everybody, this is a first-time showrunners uh, panel and sort of first-time creators panel. And we're going to just jump right into it because I think I love the idea of this panel because how scary as shit it must be for you guys to run your first show. So, let's just start. Uh, we'll go down the line. Uh, let's start with just basically for the pitch process. What did, what did you do uh, for the pitch, first of all, and then also when it got accepted, what was your reaction? Oh, well, our, our process was crazy. I, I created the show with a, one of my favorite people and one of my favorite writers, Misha Green. And we started about four years ago. And we sat down, and she's like, we should do a show about the Underground Railroad. And we pitched it all over town and just got smacked down. Like, nobody got it. Nobody understood it. We were like, we want to tell a story that's not about the occupation. It's about the revolution. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to make that show. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So about a year into it, we are like, let's just write the script. Nobody gets it. So we wrote the script on spec, and people finally got with, you know, they were picking up what we were putting down, and they were like, okay, I get it. WGN said, we want to make this show. You know, and then eventually they just brought along, like, Akiva Goldsman wanted to play, and Sony wanted to play, and then in classic fashion, they made us write four more scripts. Like, let's make sure your show's good. Oh, it's good. You know, they were always pleasantly surprised that we weren't incompetent. Um... <laughs> And then eventually we got to make all ten, and we were like, oh, shoot, we got to do this now. <laughs> so, you know, the process was just full of happy accidents, you know. Like every show, like I'm sure these guys are going to say, not enough money at all. But 
we went down to LSU in Baton Rouge, and they had this entire rural life museum, which had about like 30 structures that were specific to our period. So our slave quarters, our plantation, a lot of our stuff was already there. So we just kind of locked into it and stayed ignorant, <laughs> and then 10 episodes later, we had a television show. Well, that's, so they were all basically in the bank before you even started. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, we had pretty much had them all written. You know, we were kind of catching up towards the end like everyone does, writing the finale as we're shooting the one before. But generally, we're more ahead than we should have been. Right, and before we sort of move on and go down the line, do you think that there was a little resistance because of the topic? Absolutely. Yeah. And was it, and it, was it like no one wanted to touch it because it's race issues, or was it like just too old? Was it was history, or what was it? Yeah, a little of both. I mean, I think, I think it's, a, it's a touchy issue. I think, you know, until recently, uh, I think people wanted to see white people on screen, and I think we uh, eventually just made our case that, like, these, this is the story of American heroes that hadn't been told. And they kind of believed us, and they kind of believed us, and they watched the first cut, and they were like, oh, yeah, now we get it. So there's a lot of that. Right. And with Colony, uh, how, how, did, how did that start? Was it and also how did it end up at USA? Um, yeah, so uh, Carlton uh, Cuse, who's my partner on the show, um, and uh, and I had previously made this um, western together that uh, uh, busted over at NBC. So we, we wrote the pilot, made the pilot. The pilot did not go. Um, and in the kind of sad aftermath of that, uh, we were talking about uh, what else we could do together, and we we had a really good experience working together, um, nice creative alchemy. And uh, I pitched them this idea that had been rattling around in my head that I was obsessed with, the idea of um, doing a show about uh, basically an allegory for Nazi-occupied Europe, but telling it in present day and kind of casting a science fiction sort of, you know, lens over the thing. And and uh, Carlton really responded to it. Uh, he's a guy who we all know loves sci-fi. So um, we just started talking and then spitballing. And I had like the co- you know kind of core idea of the thing. And then we just we talked for basically two months and it came together. And it was this really nice uh, smooth process where Legendary TV had just uh, come into existence and they hadn't they hadn't bought anything really yet. So our show is the very first thing that they bought and. Um, they uh, were really supportive of it, and they wanted us to write it on spec for them. So they basically paid us to go write a spec pilot, which was awesome. And uh, and then we shopped the final script around town. And we met with uh, a bunch of people in the cable space. We very specifically wanted cable. I think a couple of the broadcast outlets looked at it, but um, didn't didn't get it. And... Uh, uh, USA just came forward really passionately. A bunch, bunch of people raised their hand and wanted to talk about it and all that, but USA just got it, and they were in the midst of their kind of rebranding. They, I think they had already bought Mr. Robot. I don't remember whether the pilot had been greenlit yet, but they were moving in their kind of new, you know, the, the new direction, and and um, they had a really you know passionate pitch. This guy, um, Alex Sepial, who's one of the executives over there just just loved it and sat Carlton and I down and, and he p- pitched us passionately on the network. And we're like, this is great. We have a partner who totally gets the show. And um, they uh, we did, a dr- I think, a draft with them that was kind of inconsequential, not much changed. Um, it was all about shading. And then I think like two months later, they picked us up to pilot, which was awesome. It was, uh, it was, it was great. And then we made the pilot. And that went really well. We had an Oscar-winning director, Juan Campanella, uh, who directed the pilot, did an amazing job. Um, you know, Josh Holloway helped with uh, with all of that, his exuding charm. He's uh, exuding charm right now, and wherever he is. There's like a blast radius of charm around him. 
and uh, and you know it landed it landed really well, and and they picked us up to series, and then you know, um, my life became hell. <laughs> well, we're gonna get to that for sure. But and just quickly in the process, when you, when you see people were raising their hands, were any of the hands being raised say, saying, "Can you do it not like you're doing it?" Yeah, of course. And your reaction was what? No. <laughs> good, good. And Xander, tell us a little bit about uh, Casual. Uh, I wrote the first episode on spec because I wanted to be in a comedy room and I'd never written a comedy, and I gave it to my agent. And she said, this is, this is weird and no one's going to buy this, but um, you know, Jason Reitman's been looking for a TV show. I want to give it to him, just like hang out for a while and see if he'll ever read it. So um, I waited for like four or five months and eventually he read it and liked it. And his producer, um, this woman, Helen Estabrook, was like, we got to get Jason more excited. It's just a pilot. Like, let's like make a series Bible for him or something. So I wrote, I wrote a Bible of sorts. And Helen's like, okay, this is, this is no good. Like, he's not going to like this at all. Um, so, so I was like, okay, well, why don't I just write the second episode? Um, and she's like, great. So I wrote the second episode. Um, and then we had two of them. And Jason was like, yeah, I like this too. I think I want to do this. We had two episodes that were written, um, and we took it out to the streaming networks and a couple cable places, basically being like, Jason's going to direct these two. Is anyone going to you know, step up and, and make it? Um, and Hulu, to their credit, was like, yeah, how many do you guys want to do? And we're like, well, I don't know. How many do you want us to do? They're like, how about 10? We're like, okay, 10's great. And uh, then they put us into a room, and we got Liz Tegelar, who's sitting right there, who runs the room. I love you, Liz. Hi, Liz. Um, and, and then we sort of had two months to write as many of the scripts as we could. I, I was uh, staffing on another show, so I wrote the third episode of my show um, while I was a staff writer on this other show. We came back into the room, and we had three scripts written, and then we sort of knocked out the next five, and we, were, we had eight written by the time we started production. Um, and it was sort of the, the whirlwind at that point of trying to get it all done and learn on the fly, and uh, you know, we were lucky enough to get a second season. And you do know that, like most people who come through who have never heard anybody say, "How many do you want to make?" <laughs> yeah, and I was I was very surprised by that. So I'd be like, "Yeah, what do you want? We'll we'll do whatever you need." Yeah, you should have said twenty. I guess. <laughs> uh, Sarah, tell us about Unreal and how that how that started. Um, <laughs> it was the first pitch of my life. Um, <laughs> I uh, flew down from Portland and walked into a room, and my life changed. Um, I had written and directed a short film called Sequin Rays that I had taken to South by Southwest. Or actually, I was three weeks away from going to South by. Um, and I sort of freaked out and left Hollywood at like 24 or something and drove my car to Portland and was like, I'm never coming back. <laughs> and uh, then I, um, was, I had a day job at an ad agency up there and there was a person who had come up to do like entertainment stuff. We were doing like long form stuff together. And she knew somebody from the 90s somewhere, and she was like, I'm going to go down and pitch some stuff for Nike. You should just hop on a plane. So I bought a plane ticket and came down with my short, which was still not colored or sound mixed or anything. I just, I think I had, like, literally had a DVD or something. And I um, met Nina Lederman at Lifetime, and uh, she bought it in the room. But I was really not sure that that was where I wanted to sell it. And I was... Um, also three weeks away from going to South by and hopefully going to get an agent. And I knew I wanted to make a series. I had sort of shot the short as a pilot, um, but I didn't really know what that meant. And so I took a minute and I just was like, can we call a couple other people? Like I just, I was, I think we Googled the front desk number at HBO. I was like, just tell them it's, I was like, tell them it's really good. I was like, tell them, tell them it's really good. It's going to South by. It's really good. And it was like, it's not going to happen. Like they want it today. Like they want you to say yes or no today. And I just had the weirdest moment of my life. I didn't 
really know anybody in TV. I had done the AFI directing workshop for women and met a great person there named Sean Heater who wrote on Orange. And I and so I and she was like my mentor. So I called her and I was like, Lifetime wants to buy my show. And she, and I was just sort of like, you know, I had my snobbery about it, but I also thought they are not gonna want me once they get me. I mean, I am like fucking dark. Like I was just like, <laughs> I because I had sat in that room with her and gone through the short, and I was like, no, I mean like no makeup, like snot running down her face, like no fuck, like no front lights. I'm talking like nothing. Like they're gonna look like crap. And she was like, I'm into it. I want it. <laughs> and I was like. I felt like it was my mom setting me up with a Jewish banker. Like, like I was like, I was like, we could get drunk and fuck, but we're gonna be pretty bummed in the morning. Like, I was like, I'm like, I was like, you guys think it's like cool to like get an artist, but you're gonna be bummed when I start writing. Oh my god! I was like, it's like dark, dark, like dark, dark, dark. Um, and Sean, my my mentor, who's incredible. I mean, the one person I knew in television was, was like, you know, did you trust the exec? And I, and I said, yeah. I mean, Nina, I don't know if anyone knows, knows Nina Landerman, but she's like a force of nature. She's just sort of like this incredible person. I said, yeah. I looked her in the eye. I trust her. And she said, do you think they want to make the show you want to make? I said, weirdly, I kind of think they do. And she was like, they're not going to make it. Just do it. Like, she's like, just, <laughs> like, just develop it. It'll be fine. So I just had this. I remember standing and looking over the river in Portland and being like, yes, yes. I was like, yes. OK, tell her yes. And then I went to South by, and we like won it, you know, like won the, you know, and, and I got an agent, and they were like, "So your deal's done." I was like, "It's done. It's sold. So we're doing this." And um, I had never written television before, so I remember when I sold it to her, I said, "Don't you think I should get a co-writer?" And she was like, "You'll be fine. I'll show you how to do it." <laughs> I, and I was like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah." She's like, "I'm like, what about act breaks and stuff?" She's like, "You just get a ruler. I swear to God." She's like, <laughs> I was like, really? I was like, because my short's one scene and people just look at each other a lot. And she was like, it's like that with a few less awkward pauses. I was like, okay. So that was not what it turned out to be like at all. Um, so, and I think, you know, to be honest, I think they probably thought I was kind of a cheap experiment. I mean, I think they were just like, yeah, this is crazy. Go try it out. And then they brought in Marty Knoxon, which was changed my life and was incredible. And so she was super busy at the time and had another show in first position, but she totally helped me figure out how to write TV, which was amazing. And also, I think by the time by the time they brought her in, I was kind of like about to asphyxiate on notes. Like I just was like, oh my, this is I've never. I mean, I've written by myself in like a closet in Portland for the last. You know, like I'm like I don't. And she really helped me feel like it was very doable. And um, then we shot a pilot. And they, um, that we had to throw out, we ended up throwing it out. Um, there was a real issue, I think, with people believing that Lifetime wanted to make this show. And the director that we got on board um, just didn't believe me. He just was sort of like, I am going to take care of you. I'm going to watch your back. They say they want your little indie short. They definitely don't. He's like, I am going to get fired by somebody you've never met the day these dailies go in. And I was like, no, I swear to God. I talked contrast ratios with them. Like, I even talked lenses because I had directed the, the short. So I was like... No, I'm serious. I'm serious. We've gone through it. We've gone through it frame by frame. They really want this. And he just didn't... He, I really genuinely think he thought he was doing me a favor. Um, so he shot the Lifetime version of the show, and I showed up every day on set having a full-blown panic attack, being like, can Rachel be in the light? Can she be in focus? Can, can it just be a little grittier? Can we like take the lights down a little bit? And he just did not believe me and wouldn't do it. So... Um, I wanted to walk off that set, and my agent, thank God, just said, just be nice and get along with everybody. If you walk, it's, it's over. They're, not, they're never going to pick up the show. 
So we got through the process. I slept in the edit bay over Christmas and New Year's and did what I could. I reframed shots. I darkened everything. I put music all over it. I just did the best I could. And it still, it was the script that we had written, but it was not the show. And we turned that in and sort of like hugged each other and said, well, it was really nice working with you. (laughs) (laughs) And then I remember it was like pouring rain and we got a phone call and they picked it up. I mean, you could have knocked us over with a feather. My agent was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) They picked up the show? And I said, they picked it up. And we reshot the pilot. And, um, And I think in some ways that experience helped because we really saw what it was like to miss and they also had, you know, the, note, the notes process had been really intense during the pilot, too. And because Marty was on her other show, I was by myself on a pilot shoot with a director who didn't believe me. And it was, it was tough. Um, but I think that happening sort of helped refocus us for what we're doing. And then Peter O'Fallon, who came on to do the new pilot, I mean, is like my spiritual father. Like, he just loves me. And we were like, you know, step, step, lockstep and also... Because I had sort of wanted to direct the pilot, but they, you know, rightly, I think we're sort of, it's just a very overwhelming endeavor for somebody who's directed a short. Peter basically did exactly my vision, but plussed it in a way, scope-wise, that I don't think I ever would have got, I, would, I wouldn't have thought to do, and I don't think they would have let me. He came in, and he's like, my deal's not done, and I'll walk if you don't give me five cranes, and I want to shoot all at night. You know, like, and I was like, <laughs> if I had done that, I don't think it would have gone over that well, so... I sort of say that he let me his male privilege. Like, he just sort of came in with, like, this, this dick swinging, like, I don't give a fuck, I'll walk. And I'm like, he's my spiritual father, but you guys don't know that. <laughs> like, he loves me. He loves me. We love each other, and we're basically the same brain. So it just, it just all came together. And then, um, again, having that pilot go wrong, I think, actually made them sort of understand that it was important to stay, stay true to stuff. So it's been a wild ride, but um, I'm super proud of the show. And... The casting process was incredible. I, I love my cast. and You know, they're going to take this yeah. panel and they're going to put it in a time capsule and then yeah. future showrunners are going to look at this and say, that never happens. Like, none of this would, would ever really happen. Yeah. So everybody is really fortunate. Uh, I, I think that part of what you're getting at, too, about it being at Lifetime, and I think uh, a lot of people probably got that, both viewers and critics certainly said, what, Lifetime? Yeah. Um, but that's true of, like, a, a, a lot of you guys. Uh, and, Joe, like, when when your show was, was going on, th- there was a there was at least some buzz like, oh, I'm not sure that Manhattan was going to work and maybe nothing in the future will work. And then yours really broke out. So tell us about that. Yeah, I think it's funny because like Misha and I, kind of in the same way, we, we didn't swing our dicks around as much. But I mean, we, <laughs> we, uh, we, we were jerks and tried to make the show we wanted to make. And kind of we stayed focused. And it's, and it's so great to have a partner in that sense because... It, you're not like, I'm going crazy. Like, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong. When we both were agreeing on something, like, okay, we're right, the rest of the world is wrong. But we're like, this is going to be good. People are going to watch it. Like, and when John Legend comes on board, and he's like, oh, I love this, I'm going to do, you know, and sits in and puts music everywhere, you're just like, okay, there's something here. But on the night before we premiered, one of the cast allegedly heard, overheard someone saying, oh, this isn't going to do as well as Outsiders. It's not, you know, it's not going to take, blah, blah, blah. And then we were pleasantly surprised to find out we were the highest-rated show on, on WGN. And, you know, we just had really, really adamant fans who were huge on Twitter. And so it was, it was fantastic. It was, you know, I feel like if we compromised it all and then the show didn't turn out as good or didn't perform as well, it would have been the saddest day of my life. But I feel like as, as the president of WGN said at our premiere, Misha and I mastered the art of good cop, bad cop, and he could never tell which was which. So I feel like we were, we were jerks enough to make what we wanted, and it turned out well, which I feel like I'm, all of these guys did exactly that. Yeah. 
And, and Ryan, at USA, you also had like Mr. Robot breaking out. The, 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 the network was, the channel was rebranding in some different way. But you also were coming in with something that they hadn't really done before. How, how did that sit? <laughs> yeah, we had this really, <laughs> this really interesting experience that, that uh, when, when we first sold to USA, everybody was saying to us, like, why isn't this on sci-fi? And why, did, why USA? And they're, you know, they do this kind of blue sky drama or you know, lighter comedy. Like, you know, why USA? And, and we kind of felt like we were in this place where it would either work or there would be no focus on it at, at all. We could kind of do what we wanted because we were, you know, the, the leash was kind of taken off, you know, to, to a degree. I think the leash is off a little bit more now. But then in... And nothing changed at all, but in the intervening time from when we were making the show to when the show aired, Mr. Robot happened, and happened in a huge way. So we went from kind of like YUSA to um, <laughs> you guys aren't quite up to the, uh, the quality <laughs> snuff level of <laughs> the USA Network <laughs> once we were premiered, which was kind of, you know, kind of depressing. Um, it still is kind of depressing. But, uh, but uh, the nice thing about that is that we ha- Mr. Robot was the best advertising that we could possibly ask for because it brought so many pe- people outside eyeballs to the network um, that uh, were you know, suddenly you know, w- watching and, and you know, people that either dark drama fans or sci-fi fans that weren't necessarily, you know, it was the, mo- it was the still is, I think, the most watched uh, you know, basic cable network on, on television. They had a huge built-in audience, but there was all these new people coming to the network suddenly. So it was great for us, and we would go around and do these press tours and Mr. Robot would come out and kind of lead the way and and they were like our living kind of promotional campaign so it, it was great and now it's really nice because the first season we, we kind of had this sort of like well you know the Nazis yes and that was all dark and evil but it's not going to be too dark right it's not going to be too dystopic we, we still want some kind of you know bright sunny hope and it's in Los Angeles and should be beautiful and all that so we were kind of trying to walk this line doing this kind of totalitarian occupation of the city of Los Angeles, and and now you know now that Mr. Robot, it, it, a much much I think darker uh, show than um, we aspired to be in the in the first season has worked. It's sort of like now it's like oh guys you go much darker, be much darker, which I'm very happy to do. It can be like so, unreal now, it's dark as shit. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> dark as shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and well, you're all. It's what's fascinating as first time showrunners too is you're also all of you are at different uh, places and outlets that are going through change or coming up or new and Xander at Hulu, uh, you know, they're trying to bust out. They're always like raising their hand saying, we're, you know, we're, we're, when I've already got calls. People say, Hey, every time you mention Netflix or, or Amazon, can you also mention us? Uh, and or, 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 that call comes in a lot. So, and I, I do, and, and, and you guys are breaking Good. out and stuff. Uh, so how was it to be in that space? And also, but at the same time making like, uh, I mean, every show was a little, other show was a little different. Yours, mm-hmm. On the surface, we talked about this the other night, your show looked like one thing, which it ended up not really being, but it looked like, hey, kind of a funny rom-com when it really really wasn't. I mean, I think, look, when we started making the show, Hulu was um, very focused on their rebrand effort. They had made some shows before, but they were, they were spending the money to make sort of shows that were going to compete with the HBO's, Netflix's, FX, like every, every one of the networks. They wanted to be one of those people. So in that sense, when they ordered the show to series, they were sort of... Um, I don't want to say beholden to us, but if they had pulled the plug in the middle of it, it would have been, I think, really bad for them. Um, And we were lucky enough to have enough scripts written that they knew what the show was going to be. And they knew that with Jason um, came a specific tone and a specific look. So I think they felt confident in that to sort of allow us to do what we wanted to do. Um, and, And basically, whenever Jason 
said he wanted to do something, they were pretty amenable to that, knowing that if you make Jason happy and he's sort of invested in the experience, you'll probably end up with something interesting, if nothing else, and it's probably a talking point, which is what I think Hulu was really looking for at that point. They wanted people to talk about their network and say, this is a place we can go to sell shows that, that Jason Reitman would do. Um, and I was lucky enough to just be on board for that ride. Like, I was the one who I had many, many smart people who took my hand and said, you're, you're going to ride this wave with us. Like, we know a lot better than you, but you've written good scripts and we're going to make them and they're going to be great. Just trust us. It's like, you know, Liz over there has done TV for so long. She was super helpful. Helen Estabrook, Jason's producer, was like, you know, an Academy Award nominee in her own right. I basically was surrounded by all these really smart people in a network that was willing to spend the money and didn't want to fail. Um, and in that, I was obviously really lucky and was able to sort of do my vision. And, and you know, you've all, I want to hear know more about, and I think everybody else does, like the, just the process of how you staff up for, for shows. Um, uh, and there was a little bit of the kind of the holy shit, we got our first show, and now what do we do to it? Um, and how much, so when you're putting together staff, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Either anybody can just jump in. And at the same time, I do also want to know about, like, once you've ramped up and you're writing stuff, and then all of a sudden, maybe for the first time, you're starting to get these notes from people, and and what that was like, and maybe some of the horror stories in the notes, or maybe they were positive. Um, I think staffing for us was interesting because uh, we kept getting comedy writers, um, and it was like you know a show about reality TV on Lifetime um, did not necessarily garner the submissions that we needed um, and I think that there were a lot of you know again just to be totally frank and what's really nice is that Lifetime is very open to me having this conversation like we're sort of like talk about it like there was a lot of we needed premium cable writers who didn't necessarily want this on their IMDb and so it was um, it was really complicated the first season and it took a lot of turning over rocks and finding people that were a little bit off the radar but had great samples um, and also getting some great, we got some great people in, too, that did nail the show. But it's just turned out to be, I think, like a very tough show to write. Because it's not, um, there's not really a template for it. Uh, the dialogue's really specific. And, again, sort of the writer that we want necessarily wouldn't, like, agents wouldn't even send them for the show. Like, we, I've had things where I've met people, I'm like, I tried so hard to get you. He's like, I never heard about it. You know, because agents just don't, don't want them on the show. And so that was really tough. Um, and I think that in, for that reason, Marty, myself, Stacey Rukeyser, we ended up doing a lot of the writing because there just wasn't a lot. Um, the bench wasn't very deep for people who could write this show. So that was, that was kind of our experience. I think it's gotten easier definitely this year. I mean, like, once we came out, um, it's gotten easier to get people, but it's not. It's still, it's still complicated. Well, it's second season. Are you just going to say, well, fuck you. We're hit now. You, yeah. Where were you last <laughs> year? But that, how, yeah. how was it? We had a similar situation where we were – you know, agents submit a million people, and we ended up calling agents, being like, you know, please tell me there's more, you know, black male writers out there. And you'd have to beg them. To, it was the complete beg. role reversal. Yeah. And then I think in a similar fashion, we ended up writing nine out of ten of our episodes. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the writer's room was fantastic, but it was also once you're in the thick of it, it was like, you know, Misha and I were on set together. We're like, okay, let's bang out episode eight. Let's figure this out. And we've also talked about it for three years at this point and written an 80-page Bible. So it's like... But our writers were fantastic and additive. And, like, if you can go a week and one writer has a fantastic idea that sparks, I mean, it's well worth the, the money you're paying them. And it's, it's, it was an interesting process. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it was incredibly hard to staff up. And um, we had an uh, easier, I think, experience this year because people were able to see what the, what the show was like. And, 
you know, I think similar to the experience that you had, you know, Mr. Robot and Colony having worked the first season, you know, just kind of opened the gates a little bit more and we had more um, premium cable writers coming through and, you know, with interesting things on the resume and all that. But, I, you know, I've compared this to the current kind of staffing situation to, like, the if the NFL suddenly expanded to 50 teams. And it's like, well, that's great, there are 50 teams, but you're still drafting from the same college pool. And, like, the... The, the you know there's a lot of talented writers out there but it's the the you know there's so many shows it's so big it's so competitive i mean there were there were writers that we were chasing that like oh they have three offers from other shows and this wasn't broadcast staffing season that you know that always happens this was kind of you know off cycle and but it, it's 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 insanity and um it it very difficult but you know we we uh were able to to find um a bunch of people that you know that were really talented and got the show and you know, this year it's even better, and it's it's about kind of you know it's like drafting an expansion team. You build your team, and then you sign free agents and trade, and you know as you, as you build your staff and people that get the show, you know, over time, and and uh, it's working it's working really nicely now. And um, you know, I'm I'm uh, crying a lot less than I was <laughs> last year. Um, I think the most interesting thing for us was that the studio really wanted or pushed us to have more producer-level writers in the first season because they were worried that we would just fuck everything up. And they're like, oh, no, these guys have done this for, you know, five, ten years. Like, they're going to be on set. They're going to know how to do it. Like, hire those people. And, you know, we did it for the first season, but we ultimately, because we were able to write ahead, um, like, you know, the EPs would be on set for every shot. So we realized sort of early on that we we couldn't spend the money on producer-level writers because we just didn't have that much of it. Um, and the second season then became looking for more of the younger voices um, who didn't have producing experience, who we could actually cultivate as a voice, who would add something to the show. Um, and that was a more fruitful experience for us. I think we found a lot more interesting um, out-of-the-box ideas for those people who'd maybe had one thing that sold or never been on a show. You know, it, it was also a, a hard sell to get Jason excited about someone who'd been, you know, just like a, a mid-level producer writer on a show for five or ten years. He's like, well, what have they done? I haven't seen their stuff. Like, have they made a movie? And we're like, well, that, they, they don't make movies, and the studio won't hire someone who makes movies. So you're like, you're like between these two worlds of like one guy wants the, the fancy young movie writer, and then the other guys want the established TV producers. Um, and for us, it was hard to find that balance at first, but I think we've we sort of figured it out the second season, being like, okay, we get a couple people who've done TV, a couple people who've done movies, and a couple people who are totally fresh voices, and you get them all in a room together and see what comes out. So for us, it was like this sort of this mix-and-match situation that I think worked out really well, but there's just so many options for how you staff a room. Like, you could, you could, have, you could spend all your money on two upper-level people and just hope that you guys split the episodes and do them together, or you get, like, five young kids and hope that they can write something amazing um, and, and just get lucky. So I feel like it depends on every room for us. We, we found a good balance by the end, but it wasn't easy. Yeah, that sounds like a um, certainly a byproduct of the whole peak TV thing, and exactly what Ryan was saying, where there's more shows, there's the much smaller. But uh, have you found those younger writers, or have you like turned over a rock and, like you said, maybe some you're taking a chance on who's like an outlier who hasn't really done anything? Did you get those people into the room? Yeah, yeah. No, we we found we found a couple. We found you know one of our best writers right now. She's a staff writer. She used to be a journalist, and she wrote exactly one script, but. She was a writer, and she understood scenes. She understood drama and tension, and we're just like, okay, get her, get her. Um, so you can find them. I think it's a, exactly what she was saying. You have to work very hard. I used to think it was like, oh, a bunch of submissions come in, you read them, and you just choose the best. But it's like really about identifying, almost yelling at agents saying, 
who haven't I read? Who isn't doing this? Who is who's? And then they'll be like, oh yeah, here's this person who's perfect for you. So I think you can find it. It's just a lot more work than I thought. And I, and I think what uh, what Sandra was saying too is that um, I think that it's an interesting part of the process. Is it's also who people will approve. So you so it's like you go through all of that. You spend your entire weekend reading. Like I mean, just like you're just like digging and digging and digging and digging. And then you can't get them approved. And so that is, I think, in the model that you're talking about with Peak TV and sort of these unexpected outlets, they're still set up to approve the writers that they're used to working with. And so when you're presenting these sort of odd choices, they also need to feel comfortable and confident that you're going to pull it off. So I do think it is a matter of giving them the stability they need to sort of trust that the room's going to do it, but also finding the people that can get it. Yeah, and maybe for Caitlin and and Emily who do ATX, the next panel next year could be Why Agents Suck. Maybe that could be it. Why, why agents are terrible? Let's do that session because everybody here has a terrible agent story about not getting uh, writers, minority Other writers. Other people's agents. We love our agents. Yeah, love our agents. Now we do. Oh, sure. Now you do. It's all been recorded. So Other anyway. people's agents uh, is a fantastic name for no, a I, But we actually, we also made a big push this year to hire female directors because I'm like a big, so I went to the, I said I went to the D, um, AFI directing workshop for women and that's like one of my big things is getting women directing. And it was like we could not get the list. It was bananas. Like we had to like scream at people to be like, we are positive there are more people available. Right. And it was just not, we just like couldn't get the list. It was crazy. We had this horrible code where they go, can she do action? That's what they kept asking yeah. about female directors. Yeah. And never once heard, can he do action or can yeah. he do emotion? It was, yeah. it was baloney. It was- yeah, it is. It is. And my friend Sean, who works on Orange, told this anecdote that I love, which is that. They got to a 50-50 ratio, I think, on season three, where it was 50% male, 50% female. And she said there was this amazing shift where suddenly people were like, yeah, that director is like, really great at dialogue, but I feel like they don't really get bigger scene structure. And it, was, and it was like they were talking about them as directors, just as directors, like their qualities as directors. And that was kind of what we shot for this, this season was to at least get the ratio where we needed it. Now, uh, a couple things. I want to talk about notes because also I wonder if, at a, as a first-time showrunner, creator, when do you feel like you've got the enough power to say, yeah, we're not doing that? I was dumb enough to not know that I wasn't supposed to say no. That's kind of me. I mean, <laughs> so I just, I just said no all the time. Um, and, yeah, so there it is. It's for better or for worse. I mean, it doesn't... It doesn't mean that we don't do the notes. We really do, and we really... I'm not bullshitting because people are listening, but we really do respect our execs and have gone through a huge process with them to get the show on the air. So we really hear the notes, but um, I think, again, having gone through that failed pilot, there is a a certain point that I get to, and this... I mean, it's happened this year where I just said, I know this feels, like, really uncomfortable to you guys, but you got to trust me. I'm going to nail it for you. Like, we are going to land it. And that's more... I think that's more true respect of just saying like I've trusted you guys before you've given me notes like they in the first season in episode five I think that I wrote it opened with Rachel who's the main character in the show getting fucked by a FedEx guy in the back of a van she just grabbed him was like fuck me real quick and then um, Colony opened the same way yeah (laughs) yeah cool um and uh but like she wouldn't let him get off, and then like then it was the episode was bookended at the end. She did let him get off to show her arc as a character. She's being more generous, and um, the um, you know they got the script and they're like, sir, it um, feels a little far. 
Um, they were like, we don't ratings-wise even really know what we're going to do with it. And uh, we haven't really established her as a sex addict. I was like, sex addicts? You seem to get fucked. I was like, what's... I was like, I don't... Anyways, I was pissed. I was really, really pissed. And I was like, if I had just waited three weeks and sold HBO, I would be having this fucking conversation. Um, but so I went back to my office and slammed the door. And I sat in there for a little while and uh, came up with something else. Uh, that I actually like so much better, which is that she's jerking off in the beginning to a video of... Uh, or she can't get off to porn, and then what gets her off at the end is um, some guy proposing to her on a beach. But so, like, um, I actually think it's more subtle, and it's better storytelling. So that's kind of my story of, like, the limitations of working within those confines, I think, for me, as a pretty extreme writer, I think has actually, is actually ended up in some good story. So... Okay. <laughs> Xander's like, no, don't, I, I not me. I'm I not can't follow, follow that. Yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, look, we they trust us to. We try every note they give us. Um, yeah. And we do too. And they trust, like, we we try the note, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And we tell them, and they, at this point, they're like, okay, well, at least you tried it. Yeah. And and then if they really want something, and we really don't want it, then I just have Jason call them and like, okay, fine. <laughs> so. I think every note is valid on the level that, like, they're having a problem, they're having an issue. I think notes are actually fine if you understand where they're coming from. It's the suggestions that we generally ignore. It's, it's like, when they're like, I'm confused at this, you're like, oh, that might be... And then, like, you know, what if he did this? And it's, sometimes it works, but most of the time it's just they haven't had a thousand hours of conversations about these characters. So if two people have the same note in general, you're like, okay, there might be something valid there, and you look at it. But you find your own answers. Yeah, I mean, I, I found uh, both. We have you know two two studio partners and and a network partner on the show, so I was a little anxious going into it. But the notes process has actually been incredibly you know um, good and respectful and streamlined. And I've also you know I've just found generally you know throughout my career, not just my current situation with Colony, but your creative partners on the studio or network side um, will respect you more if you do say no to things or say no because be, because then it becomes a conversation and then it's not just this like one way we we give you this list of things to do and you you do them and you know a lot of times if you can read the note behind the note which is you know sort of a cliche but you know as joe was saying there sometimes they make suggestions and the suggestion is not really they don't want you to do precisely that but it's getting at some problem that they're having that they're trying to solve and they can't quite articulate what the issue is and if you're able to divorce yourself from it and step back and and look at the material which is difficult I think for all of us to do because we get emotional and slam doors but um uh then a lot of times the the work gets better and then they feel like they're a you know part of the creative process which they certainly are and um, I think that, you know, the, the product is better in, in the end. So it's, it's that kind of push-pull where you don't want to do everything, but you also don't want to be the guy that says no to everything because then it's just, you know, then you're just obstinate and yeah. difficult. I was going to say, too, just having gone through the pilot, that pilot process with them, that was me on set with an exec on set literally taking almost all of her notes because I was just trying to be a team player. So that also sort of scarred me so deeply that now I really do, I feel like, and this sounds, I think this sounds very, um, like, arrogant, actually, for how I'm, st I'm still totally growing and I'm very new at this, but I do feel like we protect them from themselves sometimes because they're not in the room and they don't know what story is coming up. And, like, and also just the tone sort of lives in me. And, like, I, there are times where I just say, like, I totally understand the note, but I'm just not going to do it because we already had this thing happen where I took every note and we totally failed. And so I'm just going to keep my end of the bargain in saying that I really, really don't feel like that works. 
And so I think that, I mean, that's like a long one hard fought relationship that we have now where we can have those conversations, but. Well, that's also, yeah, I'm fascinated by that because as a yeah. creator, you want your vision as your show and you yeah. came up with it and you don't want it to be suggested to death by some, some suit for lack of a better word, but like how much of the suggestions are, um, that they don't know, which I guess is a question about if you did a Bible and you told them how it was going, but like Xander, you and I talked the other day about like on the surface casuals, one thing, but it, it evolves slowly into something else. Did they know it was going there or did they have suggestions like maybe you should change? That's a good question. I mean, they knew as much as we pitched them originally and we would give them outlines um, like most of us always have to do. And I think they sort of had an idea of what we were trying to do. But but again, you, you don't see that till you see it on the page in the script because you can't put in an outline like this is going to say the scene's going to look like it's about this, but it's really about this because until it's executed, it doesn't mean anything like until it actually is down there and then you see it on the page and then see it on the screen. It, a lot of it is a leap of faith. And I think we were really lucky that they took that leap of faith because if, if this show was on another network, I honestly think it may have been canceled or retooled after the first two episodes came out because it was really shocking to some people. They're like, wait, what, what is this? This is like not really a comedy or a drama. And is it funny? And is it like, how dark is it? And like, they, they basically stuck with us um, and saw that as it played out over the first full season, like stuff came out that was set up in those first episodes that, um, you know, they, they did a good service by us by letting us do it the way we did. Um, and I'm very, very grateful that they allowed us that, that freedom. Um, I think if it was a different network, it probably wouldn't have worked out that way. Um, but they have an idea, at least, of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to say. It's just a matter of trusting us in the execution. Yeah, and Joe, uh, um, you know, you, Underground's pretty interesting because it's, there's the, the music's kind of anachronistic to the series. A lot of things that you're doing are not like, uh, I think it could have startled a lot of people, like, this isn't how we would have done it. Like, this isn't how we saw it done before because, you know, Underground Railroad stuff has been done before. So you, when you had to come in with all these fresh uh, ideas or twists on it and modernizing like a, like a historical stuff, how many, how, did you run into to hurdles like that? All the, all the time. I mean, it, and literally with every script there was a battle and then we'd get, you know, and it's funny because you'd get, we got to episode seven which were like, okay, we want to tell this all from the perspective of the children and, there were people at the studio network who were like, no, this is horrible. We need to be with the runners, you know. And, and, and of course, you air the episode like, oh, that was brilliant. We knew it was going to be great all along. <laughs> but in general, it's a, it's a tough subject. And I think what, again, it's, it's, I'm sure you do this with Marty and you do this with Carlton and you do this with Jason where it's like, oh, we're not crazy. Like, this is going to be fantastic. This is what we're building to. So having a partner is fantastic in the sense of like, we know what we're doing. This is, again, this is about the occupation, not the revolution. This is about the bravest story ever told, like someone saying, I deserve to be free, I'm not property, I'm running 600 miles to take it back. As long as we kind of stuck to that, we felt like we were okay. And again, I, I had an executive, someone I, I love just say, um, if you don't have a good first season of your show, you have no one to blame but yourself. And I always kept that in my mind. You know, you, we needed to kind of take it across. And we need, you need to explain why it's going to be awesome. Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. But I feel like at the end of the day, if you don't get what you want, it's your fault. Right, and I get what the vibe I'm getting here is that you all, everybody sort of agrees that you you kind of made the show you really wanted to make without too many capitulations. Yeah, I, mine's really really close. I mean, like really close. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always, you know, you, there's always things that you see when you step back and look at, you know, look at the whole picture, and you know, I mean, it's it's like Apocalypse Now making the, you know, the first season, the uh, the experience, not <laughs> right. the actual brilliant movie, but the. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, you're, you're, you know, Carlton describes, uh, show running as, um, trying to put out a house fire with a garden hose, which is like a really, you know, kind of apt analogy metaphor. And, um, you know, you see, you see things when you step back and kind of look at the problem, the, the thing with, with, with TV is it's often happening so fast that you're, you're reacting to things instead of being able to have those breaths where you step back and look at the whole picture. And, and um, so I think when you have the benefit of being able to do that, you kind of see, oh, you know, if we had kind of shaped this or gone... But it helps you, I think, you know, it helped us really identify what the second season should be and then, and then beyond, because the first season is about learning what your show is. And then, and then from, you know, kind of from then on, it's, it's just about, you know, perfecting and, and making it better and better. Yeah, and, and well, since we've got this far, everybody sort of birthed their show and got it. And I'm sort of dreading to bring this question up, not just for me, but for other people. When it gets to the point where it's out and it pops out, what's, what's your feeling when all of a sudden, two-prong, A, it gets reviewed, and then secondarily, people in the wider world of the Internet start making comments on it? So what was your reaction to the re- reviews you got, or did you pay attention, and was it important? And then also feedback from people who were snarking on Twitter or praising. Um. My, my dad makes TV, and he told me very early on, never read the reviews. You will only be disappointed. And I was like, yeah, that's smart. I'm not going to read the reviews. I read every review. I read everything that everyone says, whether they're the random stranger in the middle of nowhere or they're you know, the, the better reviewers in the business. I think you know, it, it is so easy to access that, and it is, um, I mean, it drives you crazy, obviously, and you think, no, you, you don't get it. You're saying the wrong things. You're seeing it the wrong way. Like It's not for you, um, ultimately you have to stand on what you made for yourself and think, okay, if I'm happy with this and my creative team is happy with this, like, that's all you can really ask for. And hopefully the people who it's, it's made for get it and like it. Um, and if they do, great. And if they don't, like, you try better the next time. Like, but, yeah, I mean, it's obsessive. You can't stop. I can't stop. And it was, in general, it's a fine feedback loop. I mean, I feel like generally people understood it by the time they watched it. I think people watched the first four episodes and, and got what we were trying to do, which was great. And then the two people that don't, I'll always remember them. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, Carlton, uh, who's been doing this for um, a very long time, said um, that he doesn't read reviews anymore, but he will read reviews that people send him because most often those are good, you know, good positive things. And, and, you know, he finds those kind of affirming. But he's like, even even in the, you know, the, the negative stuff can just get in your head and and change the way that you're approaching the show creatively because it's just it's natural you know criticism starts eating at you and so um i kind of i kind of held to that i mean i was i was sort of anxious and nervous about um about the reception and um we had this interesting experience where like the the like the first review that came out was um i think constructively critical it was like it was well thought out and in the end said actually nice things about where the show is headed but it it kind of the first paragraph was a little like you know cringy, and then um, but then it was actually an incredibly well thought out review, and I actually agreed with a lot of the things that it said. But it was it was the only thing that out there for like two weeks, and then um, but then we j- overall got very you know positive reaction once it came through. So I was more I was more kind of like oh, okay, it's it's generally positive, and then um, I we got a really 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 positive review that um, if it was a print publication, I would have you know, printed it and, and framed it because it would have been a nice thing to keep. But um, this this uh, critic that I, I really like and read his stuff as a fan 
um, was very, very positive about the show. And the, and the thing that I loved about it was that he really he got what we were trying to do and saw it and saw the aspirations that you know the show had to be the science fiction exploration of occupation and colonialization and all the themes and the pressures that come along with that. And um, I was really, it was just, it was like, great, now I don't care about anything else because there's, there's one person out there that got it and saw it and liked it. And and that's cool. And then you know, and then the the audience was generally like really you know really really positive about it. Great. Yeah, I had a, I had a similar experience um, with a New Yorker review that I when it came out I actually have never I don't think I've ever said anything cornier in my entire life. I actually said pinch me, <laughs> <laughs> like said it, <laughs> and then I started crying. Um, I um, and I think this is this is maybe a hard thing to buy, but like the accolades feel great and all that stuff. But I actually think for me the most meaningful thing was feeling understood. And um, Emily Nussbaum wrote the review, and it was just so like specific about these things that like I don't even know that I've even said out loud that are so important to me about the show. And um, it was sort of about humanizing the women and like all of you know. I mean, it was just all this. It was all this stuff that I was like really moved to tears on the level of not like. I mean, the praise always feels good. That's definitely great, and to feel like the show got recognized and it will help it get picked up and everybody gets to do it again and all that stuff. But I was. It was like an arrow through the heart. Like I was really like it was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Really reading that because she's somebody I respect so much too. She's also someone that I love. So. Yeah, and and obviously every every show gets criticism from different quarters, and and not everybody's going to get 100 percent reviews. But again, on this larger issue, when the show keeps going on, and that's the beauty of television, right? It's an ongoing story. Things change, characters change. Do you look at this feedback that you're getting from people from the outside world, and is it? And if you do, you don't have to say, you don't have to lie. You can lie if you want. But if you is somebody actually saying something that's important, and like, you know, because. We've had panels here today uh, about, about how people are like, you know, you guys, not you guys in general, but people who are making television are, are, are falling under this trope that they don't seem to be aware of, whether it's killing gays or whatever. And now you have, so there are people who are on the outside who are forcing stuff back in. And are you learning anything from that? And has there been any like a mirror that you said, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe this character should be different or et cetera, et cetera. I, I was just going to say, I try so hard to ignore it. I think going into second season, I had a bunch of people asking me, like, don't you feel a lot of pressure? I was like, I didn't. I was like, <laughs> I'm like I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think there's, you know, I have a couple stalkers on Twitter who are super mad at me about something. I don't even know what it is. I just am like, I don't even, I think that a show, especially like mine, is just, it's super important not to listen to it. Because it's, it's like, I think it's a razor's edge in terms of tone. It's such a weird show that I think if we start playing to the cheap seats, we're just going to fall off the edge. Like, so we just try to ignore it. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think criticism is great when you're, when you're actually talking about somebody that you know, understands storytelling and is, is talking about ideas of themes and characters and, and, the, and the, the art of the process. But you know, the, 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 this, the sort of insidious side of this is this kind of outrage culture that we live in where you know everything at any moment can create you know upset somebody somewhere and if you're playing um if you're playing defense where you're afraid of doing something or saying something or having character do something because it could be interpreted as it's just an incredibly dangerous place to be as a you know as a, as a creator you have to just you know trust your instinct and if it's if you're doing it for the right reason which is telling you know trying to tell a compelling story to to dig into a theme or to explore a character of a certain type, um, then then you, you have to do it, and you can't let the the outside you know outside affect you. But you know, real discussion 
uh, of art is 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 always is always welcome. And you know, we're I think we're all constantly learning. You know, every day watching other people's shows and talking to other creators and other writers, and it's just an important part of the the process is growing. Yeah, and uh, I definitely want to get to some uh, questions from the audience, but look, we've come this far, and, and what the beauty of it is, you're all sitting here, and you've got a second season. Um, so wh- what is it that you started at the pitch, went through, you had successful, everybody's show's been uh, very positively reviewed, you've got this great feedback, you've got this great successful first season, and then you come into your second season. What is it like for you guys to say, oh, okay, now I have to do this maybe for five seasons or plus or... It's going to occupy all your lives, but what's the what's the feeling going into a second season? Um, I um I I like don't know anything about sports, but for some reason I keep calling it LeBron. Like I go because he's the only sports figure I've ever met. You watched last you watched last night, right? <laughs> no, I saw that people were mad at him. Just call it Curry. Curry. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, he was. So when I had my day job in advertising, I made a show with LeBron, and he was like my friend, but I didn't know anything about basketball. So anyways, I'm always like I'm like LeBron. Uh, but anyways, I first season, first season two. Again, everyone kept saying like, "Aren't you nervous? Aren't you freaked out?" And I was like, "LeBron, man!" I was like, "Ball hoop, ball hoop." Like I know what that means. Um, but I did. I definitely did try to stick with like you know. I wrote the first season in my weird apartment in LA by myself, and that is how I tried to break the second season. Like I just tried to come in with a super clear idea of what the season was about and stay inside the characters and kind of not give a shit about any notes and just do what I thought was right. And I think that served us pretty well so far season two. I mean, I'm feeling really good about it. And um, I feel like that's just what I go back to is sort of like this all comes down to just writing the show, you know? Xander? I think think all of us are lucky enough that uh, the first season of our shows worked well enough that we weren't told by our network bosses you have to reconceive of this and redo this like when when you when you work you kind of want to keep doing what works and you you have to be objective and know that there are things that maybe you thought would work the first season and didn't and you sort of maybe steer away from those or you try to improve on them in the second season but ultimately you know this is a machine that starts going and like you have to get scripts out in a certain time they have to be on budget you have to get people in the right places you have like an insane schedule and an insane amount of like financial stuff hanging over your head and if it's working, you just want to keep doing that because the longer it works, the, the better off we all are and the more interesting stories we can tell. So for me, going into the second season, it was like, okay, we sort of understand what these characters are and what their strengths are, and we know what the network likes and what our audience tends to sort of like, and let's, let's sort of stick in that, in that realm, and we can tell the stories we want to tell, but um, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater if, uh, if all is well. Yeah, I mean, I saw it as a, as a great challenge. I mean, we, you know, the first season, like I said, is so much about finding the show that you, you're finding what works uh, from a writing perspective. You're finding out what your actors um, can do and what their strengths are and what you should do more of with them. Uh, you're figuring out what you can do, what you can produce as a show. I mean, we're, you know, we shoot, we're lucky enough to shoot locally in, in L.A. on location, and, you know, we have stages over there, too, but with that comes a lot of, you know, cost concerns about being out and being off the lot, and what can we do well, and can we do action, what kind of action? So you kind of learn all that stuff, and then you refine your crew, and uh, we were lucky enough this year to have um, Juan Campanella, who's our pilot director, come back, and he's the executive producing director on the show, so he's going to direct a bunch of episodes for us and also produce all the episodes. We have this amazing, um, you know, uh, physical production producer to, to worry about all that stuff, so... To me, it's a great challenge about making something better and, and, and learning from the things that you did well and you didn't do well in the first season and really setting out to like 
be like, okay, now now we've learned and and I've you know survived my first season not only as a showrunner but also in the writers' room because I'd never been in a writers' room before, <laughs> and uh, let's go out and really make something that you know that aspires to be great, whether it is or not. I, I don't know, but aspires to be. Yeah, I mean, it's listen, it's the best job in the world as far as I'm concerned. To be able to do it again is awesome. I mean, we. One of the most validating things was we put our crew through the ringer. We had tornadoes and mudslides, and we were like, nobody's ever want to come back. And then when we got the season two pickup, we got emails from pretty much everybody saying, I'm going to say no to this job if I can come back. So it's, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised at how much we had become a family cast crew, um, all of us. And, and just that that family's going to get back together and do it again is just like the greatest thing. Uh, a couple of quick questions from the crowd. I was lucky. I inherited uh, April Webster uh, from uh, Carlton and JJ's camp, so she cast Star Wars. So that was, you know, good enough <laughs> for Colin. Yeah, John Papsidera is Jason's casting guy, so I had no choice. We met about three or four uh, groups of people or people, and um, we just ended up going with Eric Dawson because we just looked at his credits and he kind of known everybody, and he 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 seemed to understand how to turn over rocks and find unknown people like Amir Van. Yeah. And Barbara Fiorentino did ours. I think I had a couple people to choose from, and she, um, again, was one of those people who I think, like, immediately she and I had a total mind meld. And I think she was like, you're cool, I'm going to work hard for you. And it was like, it was, that was kind of important because, again, it was a lifetime show. So it was, the res- we had a lot of resistance in terms of people um, coming onto the show specifically with the position of uh, the role of Quinn, which is it's Rachel's, she's Rachel's boss, and she is um, an actress of a certain age that to go to Lifetime could signify a career situation. So I really wanted Constance. Constance was my first choice uh, when I pitched the show, the day I pitched the show, and um, she said no to us like 16 times. Um, <laughs> And then my exec, Nina, who, the, who my friend had said, do you trust her? And I was like, dude, she's a force of nature. Stalked her at her child's school. <laughs> cornered her. <laughs> Their kids go to school together, so it's not as weird as it seems. But um, cornered her and said, I know you th- just think it's Lifetime, but this is the face. And she said, you really need to meet with them. You really need to watch this short. And so it was kind of, I think for me, and it sounds like for you too, it was about... It was about finding these people that believed in the show for whatever reason, because everybody was going to have to work extra hard, and Barbara was that person for us. How did you find... You had to find, like, 13 contestants. Was that impossible? Oh, my God. <laughs> that was also, okay, fun story was that when I, the day I sold the show, Nina was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. The, cat, the, the show within the show revamps every year. It's like a new show. And I was like, isn't that awesome? Buy my show. And then I was like, oh, I have to create a new show every year. <laughs> So that's um, that's been really challenging, actually, because they they have to be really good actors. Yeah. Uh, one, we have time for one more question. Somebody all the way in the back. I worked on The Bachelor for three years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got, um, I was a feminist and I um, started working on a different, I mean, I am still a feminist, but I, <laughs> I was a feminist, gave that shit up. Um, 
But um, no, I started working on a different show. Um, I I was like a folk singer, like screenwriter, and I needed to pay the rent, so I got a, a job on a different show called High School Reunion, and I didn't read my paperwork because I was a idiot and I signed everything and they approached me and said hey we're going to move you over to the bachelor and I was like oh my god no I was like thank you so much I'm so flattered that is going to be a really big problem for you and for me um, because I am like cuckoo feminist like no and they were like read your contract and so I um, I got transferred onto the bachelor and I was unable to get out of my contract for three years which is I finally got out by saying I was going to kill myself or leave the state so um, anyways yes that is how I know can we get a round of applause for the cast? Thank you. Thank you for coming out. Sweet, the single season. This is Deborah Birnbaum. And, um, <laughs> Birnbaum. So this is a subject near and dear to my heart because there are so many shows that I love that unfortunately only last one season. And so we've got some fantastic creators out here who I'm very excited to bring out. So let's start with them. Um, first up is Hart Hansen, the creator of Backstrom, among many other shows. Make yourself comfortable. <laughs> Pick a name card, any name card. Um, next up is Ted Griffin, the creator of Terriers. <laughs> I feel like I'm announcing the Miss America pageant. Um, <laughs> um, Kevin Falls, the creator of Journeyman, among many other shows. And this season... <laughs> and Javier, I'm going to screw this up. Rio Mar Mark's couch. Mar oh, sorry. I think <laughs> Mark's watch. I did it. Thank you. <laughs> My short-term memory is totally shot. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Take me to the pitch when you first pitched the show. Ted, let's start with you and Terriers. I just, um, I'm just wondering what else this panel should be called, like dealing with failure. Or, <laughs> Again, uh, short and sweet, perfect. <laughs> How my shrink son went to college. <laughs> The two ways you deal with failure, you either wear a black shirt and jeans or a dark shirt and tan pants and tennis <laughs> shoes. Uh, I'd never done television before. I uh, got really uh, uh, hooked in. Uh, the first show I ever binged was The Shield and absolutely loved it. And so I uh, called up uh, Sean Ryan, who was running that show, and uh, uh, asked if I could just hang around the writer's room for a season. And I did on season five of that show and uh, ended up writing one uh, episode with the chick Eggley. And then afterwards, uh, Sean said, do you want to do a show? And I said, yeah, but I have no ideas. And he's, uh, then we sat around and looked at each other for a while. Um, and then that went on for a long time, just looking <laughs> at each other wistfully. And then I said, how about something like Butch, Sund uh, Butch and Sundance, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? And then um, 
uh, and then I wrote a script, and then uh, FX decided uh, to do a, another show, and to do <laughs> what they decided they did Justified instead. And then, uh, but somehow in the budget they had room for one other show. So Landgraf said, if you uh, rewrite the pilot entirely, uh, we'll all greenlight it. And but just on the, uh, I don't know, uh, it was greenlit, and then I wrote the pilot, and then we made it, and then it flopped. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I was but trying to. I was trying to be loyal, succinct there. By the it end, it had many loyal fans while it was on the. Air. It, no, no, it, uh, and it was extraordinary. It was the best uh, professional experience I've ever had, uh, and so everything went right except it flopped. But everything else, I wouldn't uh, change a thing. We're um, going to come back and talk about other reasons, but I want to get okay. to everyone and give everyone a chance to talk. Kevin, you want to talk about Journeyman? Uh, yeah, it was a similar situation. I, I heard that my agent told me because I don't have any original ideas. Uh, that that ABC needed a time travel show, and so I pitched there. I had the greatest pitch of my life, and they didn't buy it. And then I, but I, I pitched it at NBC, and I had another great pitch, and they did buy it. And that was the last successful moment of the of the of the, of the history of Journeyman. Yeah, but not creative. Creatively, it was the, the one of the most satisfying experiences. But um, that was the last time I was really happy. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> Until riding over with Hart. Why is Hart here? He had a show on for seven years. <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> I'm going to drink some Talk of this water that, that doesn't bubble. <laughs> Hart, you want to tell us about Backstrom? Kevin, by the way, was there. Oops. I do this every time. Fine. Well, um, I wonder why we can't get a show to watch. Can you Kevin, hear me? Kevin, by the way, me? has a new show on the air called Pitch. So, <laughs> uh, Kevin was there on the day that Bones was uh, ordered. The last, the uh, really the scum of the earth order um, of Bones. Uh, so. well, you would, we, I told Deb that's I'm not going to bore you, but but we both had pilots at the same time. Mine was the first one that was picked up. His was the last one. I got first choice of actors, line producers. He got the last one. Twelve years later. <laughs> yeah. But we were sitting about this uh, close to each other. I have uh, two um, first uh, one season and out uh, shows. One is called The Finder, and the other was called Backstrom. And they were different experiences. Um, the Finder was uh, the t- a terrible decision. Um, I came up with um, the... I did the pilot, and... and that was fine. And then uh, Fox decided that what we should do is position it as a um, spin-off of Bones, integrate a Bones, one Bone episode, and then do the um, pilot. This was a terrible idea because the very, very passionate Bones fans thought that I was trying to replace Bones. It didn't matter what I said. It wasn't true. It was going to be a front... So that was a bad decision. And then uh, Backstrom was um, uh, last year, um, and um, that was a uh, everything. Uh, it was the only good pitch I've ever done. I'm, a, I'm the, as you can tell, I'm the world's worst pitcher, and Backstrom was the only good pitch. And uh, I got uh, an actor I really, really wanted, and everything went great except nobody watched the show. And I've never been happy since. That's all. <laughs> This is, I feel like this is a therapy session. <laughs> Javi, your turn. To watch I've never that. really been happy. And, uh, no, uh, okay, so uh, it was like 1998, and I was working on Charmed, and Charmed was the kind of show where if you had a vampire, like, I pitched the vampire, and they're like, well, what does the vampire want? And I'm like, to suck blood and kill people. And they're like, no, but what does it want? And you're like, to suck blood and kill people. <laughs> There's been a hundred years of literature on this topic. 
And 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 so you you'd wind up coming up with these convoluted plots where like there was you know the the bloodstone of Shalaru that had to be it was coming to a museum in San Francisco. And I thought wouldn't it be great to do a show where like people just sort of understood this shit, you know, and you didn't have to explain vampires to the audience because really the audience knows that, right? Quite so, a concept. Uh, so I wrote a spec script called The Middleman, and everyone hated it. My agent hated it. My ex-wife hated it. <laughs> I lost the wife, kept the agent, um, uh, and, and, and nobody liked it, and it was just self-indulgent, you're an idiot, shut up, uh, take the charm money, and, uh, and, and then I quit Charmed, and that didn't work out for anybody. That show went on for eight years, the most successful thing I've ever been involved with, that ran longer than Lost. I mean, so anyway, um, so it just sits in my hard drive, and then I go to work on Lost, and I meet this guy, Paul Dini, who is, was the head writer for the animated Batman, like a lovely dude. And he told me all about, like, how you could find artists and do independent comics. So I found this artist, Les McLean, on the internet, paid him a little bit of money. We put a pitch together. And it went to this little indie comic book company called Viper Comics in Houston. And, uh, and so then we had a comic book, and we sold, like, ten issues. It was awesome. And, like, literally, they put from the creator of Lost, not the creator, the writer of Lost. And, like, it did, did, did nothing, you know. And, of course, the, and, and so, I got, so I showed it to the president of ABC Family, and we'd taken it around, and nobody wanted it. And, and she's like, yeah, let's do this. We need our Buffy for ABC Family, because ABC Family was starting its first of several rebrands. And I'm like, great. You do realize there's, like, a monkey with a machine gun in it. And she's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, it's not a metaphorical monkey. <laughs> she's like, no, I know. And then, so, and, and then we, they, they greenlit it, and we aired our third episode. And Paul, Paul Lee, who was just the president of ABC, was the president of ABC Family at the time, and he calls me, and he goes, like... He calls after the third episode. I'm like, are we canceled? And he goes, no, 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 you're not. He's British. I can't do his accent. I'm sorry. He goes, no, no, you're not canceled. And I'm like, uh, he's going to talk like Michael Caine, okay? No, you're not canceled. And I'm like, like, are you sure? Because the ratings suck. And he goes, oh, yes, the ratings are terrible. And I'm like, "Uh, so we're canceled. He goes, no, 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 just make as many as you can until we run out of money. And then we get Shout Factory to the DVD like they did with Freaks and Geeks. And everything he said happened. We made the show till we ran out of money. And then they got, freak, they got Shout Factory to do a DVD. All 12 episodes. It's a really nice DVD set. Go buy it. <laughs> Deborah, tell us a painful moment from your life. <laughs> so I was the editor of TV Guide. <laughs> Feel better now? <laughs> I have a great psychotherapist. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but now I'm in variety and all things in both. So what did you guys learn from the experience? Was there something you took away from it? Or is this going to bring up more painful memories for you? <laughs> I, I got better at, you know, ending shows in one year. I mean, you, you, you start to look. You could see, read the tea leaves early. And uh, you're not like, oh, well, we're going to pull this thing out. No, we're going to hit the mountain. So let's just... <laughs> Let's pull everything up and try to tell the, tell the story in a way, especially in this world of different platforms, you can, you can live as a finite you know, series, a special event in your own mind. And uh, it helped. It actually, having done it, did a minority report last year, and then, um, and then Journeyman, you actually wrote it as a miniseries. And it, it ended up making the show better than, it's, than just having ended it. It was satisfying for the 30, 13 fans of the show. So. <laughs> I did the opposite on The Finder, and you're right. I thought, if I write such a cliffhanger that they have to bring it back, that will work. It didn't work, so it left the audience that there was incredibly unsatisfied. Um, and the other thing I learned is... Much like my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I set you up. Uh, 
The other thing I learned is that when networks tell you what they want, you need a tra I need a translator. Um, uh, you know, when they say they want an anti-hero, they don't actually want an anti-hero in network. I think they do in cable. But I don't think they, they just want a scruffy guy. Um, uh, and so I, 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 will, I will be more careful. Like, I, I need a trans... I, I always need a translator. I have to ask people, what's that mean? Um, and not assume that I know. I mean, Ted, for you, you had a very supportive network. I mean, this was a uh, president who got on a conference call and basically lamented the cancellation of the show to a group of reporters. That was kind of unprecedented. And he took me out for a couple's massage after, <laughs> and it was, uh, we had a nice time together. Uh, so uh, I guess the thing I learned is, is uh, coming from uh, movies, which is a terrible uh, uh, industry, uh, uh, but occasionally you have an idea of like, oh, that's a hit movie, or uh, somebody brings dinosaurs back and uh, there's a park now. Great. That, I, uh, I know that's a big summer. TV, I have no idea. Like, I don't think there's anything as a sure thing. Um, and not that I thought Terry's was a sure thing, but I thought this will this like seems to be working. It'll go, and so I didn't. Um, uh, I guess what, uh, the other thing I would actually say I learned is that um, uh, I think you need to sort of watch everything besides the quality of the show and uh, uh, as a showrunner and, and making sure production's going fine. Uh, I think uh, probably the marketing campaign kind of went up the right up the center between me and Sean and neither of us were really covering it. So when we ended up with dogs on the posters, I think it took us a while to go, wait, that's kind of misidentifying a show called Terriers, which is, I realize, a bad title and that's my fault. There, I said it. But, uh, but when you put a dog on the poster, people really think it's a show about dogs. Um, so you have to, uh, I guess what I learned is you have to watch everything. Um, it there. was a beautiful, eye-catching poster. It was. It, it was uh, it's a handsome poster. I, w I would have been fooled into thinking, this is great. And about dogs. And about dogs, And yeah. you know what? We had, we had the same thing. We thought we had a great poster for Backstrom, and it, it, it's, um, you know, it, it was something like, a, what a dick. So and, here's my terrible question. Can you explain why Backstrom didn't, didn't happen? Do you, do you have a theory? Um, I have about 100 theories, and Rain Wilson and I talk all the time about... Why? I, um, I don't have a specific theory. I do understand why it wasn't picked up. Mm -hmm. It did not ca catch fire. It was uh, critically reviled. I think kind of unfairly um, uh, because, you know, say, oh, who wants to watch this guy? And it's like, well, wait a minute, you don't know who that guy is. And one reviewer said, I stopped watching after eight minutes. And oh. the first eight minutes wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, you know, I understand why they didn't pick it up. I'm still bitter about the finder. It was on an upward trajectory. Um, the, the president of the network hated it, but he hates, um, I say this without passion, he hates what I do anyway. Mm -hmm. Kevin Riley doesn't like Goofy. Um, okay. I'm Goofy, uh, and then my shows are kind of Goofy. I'm adorable. <laughs> <laughs> you know we look a lot alike. <laughs> we have the same birthday. Um, <laughs> That's true. In case you want to write that down. Uh, Javi, do you want to say something? So, you know, uh, my psychotherapist has this expression. I I'm sorry, it keeps coming. He's very important to me. <laughs> this is a safe space. We're, we're good. Um, 
Did you burn out the first I did, I did. She moved, She quit and moved to Spain. Um, no, she really did. Um, no, so anyway, uh, my psychotherapist has this expression, give them you until you is what they want, and th- that might alight some people to whom my psychotherapist is. But, um, and, and the thing that happened with the middleman, so we get, this show has no business being on the air. Like, it really doesn't. I mean, it's, it's like if you went into my head with a straw, you get the middleman. So we just decided to just, you know, keep pushing and see just how far we could go. So the second episode had, you know, Mexican wrestlers who had a blood feud with Bruce Lee. And then we did one about vampire ventriloquist dummies. And then we did one about a tuba that had been on the Titanic. Because the, the, the string quartet in the Titanic actually was a mixed string and brass quartet. And so we did that. And then if you listened to the tuba, you died. And then we did, I mean, and then we did the evil twin. We, we did homicidal androids. I mean, it was, like, it was like literally we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And the, so the show gets canceled, and it was just, you know, they, they couldn't get the viewers. But what's been, the thing I learned in The Middleman is, is there is a place in the world for your voice. Um, maybe, maybe, you, it's not a, maybe it's 12 episodes and not 12 years, but you know, the, the, the amount of fan goodwill that, that, that we got from, from, that, episode, from that show, you know, and, and, and you go like, but it, it, we did an episode about zombie, flying zombie fish, and people loved it, and, and, and it, it sort of carries you through because when you're like a journeyman writer like myself, you go on a lot of shows, maybe they're not all about, you know, you don't necessarily buy into all of them or you're executing somebody's vision, and this experience, all, all it did was tell me there's a place in the world for you and you're going to find it again. Now go write Charlie's Angels, you know. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> well, he that said was... journeyman. <laughs> I'll take anything I can. Did you get that? Do you think the TV landscape has changed now, now that there's so many different platforms and streaming and cable and all of these avenues that shows can find a new audience? Not our shows. <laughs> My, my two shows are definitely network. Uh, there's a, I guess you could do a cable version of them, but it, you'd, have to, uh, you'd, you'd have to reconstruct them from the ground up, from the premise up. And um, so, uh, you know, uh, I finally stopped. Uh, I, I gave up my overall deal at um, 20th because I know what they wanted from me were procedurals network procedurals, and my take on a network procedural is kind of uh, goofy and funny, I hope. Some people think so. Um, and nobody wants that. Uh, I think that's a right next, then until somebody does it um, again uh, and succeeds, bones happen to catch a wave, and um, I just, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think there's a home for these two shows except for on a network, and that home doesn't exist anymore, so. But do you th- I, mean, I guess my point was, do you think audiences' tastes have changed, like in the cycle when your shows were on the air? Now, <laughs> n- <laughs> sorry. No, I don't have to. <laughs> now I, where we are, that I, and now yes, I feel uh, like standards have changed a little bit. I'm wondering what the lowest rated show that is still going, like, uh, I don't know what the numbers are on Rectify on Sundance, because they don't really have to do, I'm, I'm imagining they don't have to do a million, uh, yeah. which we never touched, which made us, I think, by a factor of five, the lowest rated FX show. Uh, what, or what the Americans is doing, which is sort of the, at the moment, the kind of the, uh, a high watermark critically, at least for FX, but for a lot of shows. I think their numbers are low, but I don't know how, how what bar you have to... Uh, I don't think we would have... Our numbers would still get us canceled today, um, and I'm proud of that. <laughs> um, it was such a good show. Hey, thank you very much. Um, it, I... I, I I take some sucker from the the fact that my shows were uh, not well reviewed, so maybe I deserve what I got. I don't know how you go to sleep at night getting those reviews. 
and, and still getting canceled. Well, I don't want to show people here, but uh, there's a way. There's yeah. <laughs> Medical marijuana uh, is how I do it. Um, the, you, you know what? The, the thing is, the th- no, it's true. Um, and, and, and I, I didn't <laughs> doubt you. Um, the thing is, um, you know, now so you've got Amazon, you've got you know, you've got the Hulu, and you've got the the, the Netflix and all that. And I think that what it's done is that you know, there is a certain type of show that never would have existed in, in the network that can be supported by like a subscriber model or something like that. You know, like a show like Trans, like Transparent is a show that is is belongs in a place like Amazon because Amazon has the ability to, you know, like if maybe they don't get the, the Bones audience, for example, you know, 15 million of, of, of those viewers, you know, they can maybe offset the loss and the show is important and necessary and all of that. And I think that, that yeah, you know, the, the, if, if you've got like a really quirky worldview and a really quirky vision, and it doesn't mean that, they, that there's an oasis of creative freedom anywhere, that, that, that's a myth, but, but there are places where, there are, where, where the models allow you to be a little more experimental on the other hand, you know, I think that our—I don't know how you guys feel about it—but I feel like our shows were probably a product of the time in which we made them, and if we tried them now, it wouldn't be the same, you know. I mean, do you- yeah. well, I, I do—I do know that Journeyman was 2007. The next year, they counted DVR numbers, so we would go, "Hey, these, the DVR numbers are great." It came out at 10 o'clock, so and people, our audience was younger, so they knew how to operate uh, the DVR, and so. <laughs> But we would get these numbers. We'd go, look at these numbers. But sorry, it doesn't matter. Next year, they do. And then, and then last year, with Minority Report, they would say, well, you know, which didn't have a great debut. And same thing, well, next year, we're not going to share our ratings with anybody. It's like, I'm just missing it. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe this year. So uh, Amazon and Netflix still don't share their ratings with anybody? No. I don't think so. No, no they, they don't. know that better than me. Um, I'm going to go do a show for them. Yes. <laughs> and I, I guess my point was, now in my new home at Variety, um, the second a show gets canceled, we literally start writing the stories. So, well, where is it going? Is someone shopping it around next? And I can see in this day and age, when a show like Terrier that gets canceled, which has good, strong critical reviews, which has a certain passionate fan base, the next thing is going to be, is it going to find a new home? That's what I see happening. This, you know, look at what happened with Nashville. It got canceled, then suddenly it found a new home. It suddenly gets shopped around. You get over now into a... Uh, you could easily slide into a discussion of the industry and, and is, can it sustain like this? How many... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of the golden age of TV shows don't have very big audiences. Right. I understand HBO's model. Um, I, I might understand Netflix's. But it, there's a lot of business models. I don't, I don't understand how they're making their money. Um, and maybe that's because I started out as a network mind where you have to get a certain number of viewers to make your studio or your, your investor happy. But I, I, I don't... Uh, you're in variety. Maybe you can tell us, like, how the hell are so many shows that, that very low numbers sustaining the business model? I don't, I don't understand that. Do I need to move over to that couch to answer? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I mean, I think every network makes their own decision. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, Landgraf said pretty blankly that, you know, the audience gets a vote, the critics get a vote, and I get a vote, and that's how he decides, and that was sort of a blanket formula. But I think that's for Landgraf and his decision at FX. I can't speak to what's happening, you yeah. know, at other networks, but there are obviously decisions. There are some things they keep on the air because they want the praise, yeah. and they want the critical reviews, and they want the Emmy Awards, and some they just decide because they like the show. Well, now... Uh, I mean, just it's been funny to sort of watch uh, the industry make a, the network industry take a little bit of a turn back into the mainstream, announcing that they're not going to care as much about demos, that they are going to try and get broadcasting 
audiences. And I, I've, been, um, I've been in the network world while they were trying to be cool and cable-y. And that didn't work out, obviously, for them. And CBS just said, we're not cool, we're old, and we have gigantic audiences. And NCIS, which is a show no one ever talks about, has more young people watching it than any other show. And a very small percentage of the audience are young people. I, I feel like now I've become... Bridget, am I boring now? No, yeah. I, I, feel, I feel like the self-loathing of networks is, should be a topic in and of itself, because it's interesting, like... The year that, that USA went dark, you know, because USA Network, you know, they used to have, like, like they, they went dark. And, like, and like the, the, the year they went dark was the year that SNL had a sketch called What is Burn Notice? And that there was another online outlet that had a sketch about how all the USA shows would become one big show called Beach Law, right? Now, <laughs> I can totally see, like, a network president sitting there pulling his hair out, or her hair out, going, Ah, why don't we have respect? All we have is success and money. And, and like... And like, well, you know, like, and it's weird because sometimes decisions get made not based on, on objective criteria, but on, you know, we want to get the Emmys, we want to have the Halo shows. And, and you know, look, I, I, I owe the existence of my one season wonder to a network saying, you know, we, we want a weird, quirky show. So I guess that's a really good thing. But it's, it's amazing to watch networks make decisions based on things like pride as opposed to, you know, like him, love him, hate him, whatever. I think what you said is absolutely right. The, 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 the greatest businessman in TV right now is Les Moonves, who basically makes, he makes CBS. Right. And they know who they are, and they don't care if sketches are done about their shows. Like, there's, there's a YouTube mashup of Caruso doing one-liners from, from, NC, uh, from, from CSI Miami, and they don't care. They just get the checks, and they're good. For a second, I thought you meant Enrico Caruso. Oh. <laughs> and I, I so wanted to YouTube that. Um, it is, I will say, a great time to, uh, uh, to have a failure. Uh, if you, I think if you did uh, 15 years ago a one-season wonder, that would be a memory. Uh, so living in the age of, uh, that you do get a DVD release uh, or that you are now streaming, the, 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 your one-season thing, uh, at least there's a, a shelf life to it, uh, as opposed to uh, just sitting at a bar saying, yeah, I once ran a show. But it's a knife in the heart. That, where, where, is, where do you come across your show when you're looking for, you know, Foil's War or something? <laughs> do you... I have it constantly running in the house. <laughs> uh, any, any room I walk into. And then I just... And then the reviews are there, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> but in one room, I, I'm playing Rudy, uh, just for inspiration. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Kevin, for the love of God, stop, man. You're monopolizing the panel. You're killing us. I know. Us. The next question is for Kevin. So I'm Kevin, so this happy. hasn't... No, 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 don't bring no, me No, no, but I was actually going to come back to you next. So obviously this hasn't scared you off. You're coming back this season with Pitch. Talk about the process of going back to a network and, you know, pitching a new show. Well, like, like Hart, um, I've... I've been um, in an overall deal. I almost said indentured. I've been in an overall deal uh, at Fox for a few years before that, Sony and before that, Fox. So I have no choice. I have to develop for the network. And by the way, I love being at Fox, um, for, the, for the record. Um, but it does, it does you know, narrow your... What, what creatively, I would love to do something probably a little more outside the box. Um, but I also have been fortunate enough, you know, to, I didn't create Minority Report, but I got to work with Max Bornstein and Steven Spielberg. I, this year I get to work with Dan Fogelman and Rick Singer and, and Paris Barkley, I know from West Wing days. So that part of it is really cool. It's, it's nice to be with that product. But as far as I kind of do miss the one I did, you know, develop for them that I love, which is about a, a university, a president of a university. 
didn't get on, didn't didn't quite make the cut. But okay, that's I'm well, I'm nicely compensated, and I should just shut the hell up. So I'll just go back here, and I want you kids to just take over. <laughs> the one thing about Journeyman that's funny is that you were talking about DVDs. There's no DVD because of the music. It was on Hulu for like six or seven years, and then it went off. Uh, but God bless the British. It's, I guess it did well in England, and it helped that Kevin McKidd was on it. But they did a DVD, but um, you're an international DVD player. And, uh, or you can watch it five times on your computer. So, so I used to have it around my house, but then I got to the sixth time. <laughs> I couldn't anymore. Ted, what about you? Is there anything else you would want to do? Do you have another project you're working on? Uh, well, the one thing I learned from doing my season of television is, is I'm not sure what works on television. So I've, I've, uh, I haven't developed since. I've just been uh, waiting here in town for this panel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I made the really wise choice of uh, going back to movies, which is in the tank. Uh, where so, the writer really has power. Yeah, where the writer is. Yes, my liege. Uh, and, uh, and that's been working out great, too. So, um, uh, no, I, I, did, I directed an episode of uh, an Amazon show for Sean Ryan last year, and then that show tanked. And I plan to tank another Amazon show uh, this summer. So I'm, I'm keeping my hand as, as a director, but uh, I, I don't have a clue of what, uh, except for maybe uh, Beach Law, which is probably the better, a better title for Terriers. It sounds like a great show. And Javi, I know you're working on The 100 now. No, I'm not. Oh, you're not? I'm sorry. No, no, no. That, uh, no. Uh, 100 has been very good to me. Okay. Uh, no, uh, uh, I'm actually... What are you working I'm, on? I am rebooting Xena Warrior Princess for Excellent. the NBC. And uh, that's really exciting. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens yeah, with that. Yeah, for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Hart, what are you working on these days? Um, I, you know, his, his, was... his 40,000 square foot house <laughs> from Bones. In, in Puer- <laughs> um, I, I, uh, uh, I, I was hoping it would be, uh, you have to let people do their announcements. I'm, I, I, believe it or not, I have a, a, a sci-fi um, show in uh, development, but I have to let them, based on a classic um, uh, sci-fi property that I'm very excited about. But I can't, I can't really say much more about it because you have to let people do their announcements. Um, and then a, there's a foreign format that I'm developing as well. I am a great number two. I am very compliant. I do what I'm told. <laughs> I take orders really well. Sci-fi. Okay. I think this would make a great writer's room right here. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, ooh. Gee, ooh. Together we can get a second season. You know, you know I, I'll, I'll tell you what, in, in apropos of the question of what are you, what are you working on, um, one of the things that I, that I learned doing The Middleman was, you know, I went out and I found this artist, Les McLean, and we made the comic book, and that's how we sold it and all that. And the thing that's really interesting is, is sometimes what it taught me more than anything else is that there's a value to being entrepreneurial. And it isn't always for money. Sometimes you do things for the love of the game. You know, uh, there's another uh, Puerto Rican uh, writer-producer named Jose Molina who just worked on Agent Carter. He worked on Firefly and all that. And we started doing a podcast just in our living room uh, that's called The Children of Tendu that's just to educate television writers. And, and it's actually quite mercenary. We do it because we want uh, staff writers to be good before we have to work with them. Um, you know, so, I mean, we're evil. We're not nice people. We just, we just really want our life to be easier. Um, but, you know, so, so we just started doing that. And, and, and there's no money in it necessarily. But one of the things that, 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 that I learned from the entire experience and that I think is, is actually very germane to television right now is that you have to go out and, and stake your claim a little bit. You have to, and I hate to say build your brand, but like in a way it's like 
this was a little indie comic book that I that I paid for out of pocket using money that I that I earned doing Lost, and and just every every time you go out and you make a little thing that can be quirky, stupid, idiosyncratic, or whatever the hell it is, it's something that could turn into a one season failure show, um, and and that's that's not a bad thing, you know. It's like you you the, the more activity and the more your mind is engaged in the entrepreneurial side of it. Um, the more likely you are to hit success on the other end. So it, it really was, for me, more than anything, an object lesson on just keep developing and creating new material no matter what it is because something's going to hit. Are you hey, Puerto man. Rican? Yes, I am. Okay. I did, because I shot that Sean Ryan show in Puerto Rico last summer, <laughs> and it was delightful. Oh, great. Okay. So please tell your country... Sorry, your nation state? Territory. Territory. Yeah. I, I like to think of it as uh, sex casino tax shelter. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So are you are you the Lin Manuel Miranda of television? Oh, sorry. I was plugging Hamilton. Never mind. Just name check Hamilton as often as you can. Yeah, because it needs the help. Exactly. <laughs> so you guys are in good company. There are plenty of other single season shows. Um, do you guys have a favorite? Um, Police Squad. These three. I, I was, I just from growing up, Police Squad. That was the, the first show that I remember. This is great, and then it was gone, and uh, and then became Naked Gun. But I still think, uh, but I think they lasted six. Uh, so that's my ancient answer. Um, I, I have a pretty ancient answer too. Um, the, the 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 guy from Shout Factory who produced the Middleman DVDs. Then his next assignment was producing the Max Headroom DVDs, and we had bonded during the Middleman about the making of about Max Headroom, how much we loved it. So he said, well, do you want to be involved with the DVDs? And I'm like, they made the show already. I can't write more Max Headroom. And he said, no, we're going to have a cast reunion, and we need like, somebody to host it. So I, I got to be like the, the Charlie Rose of Max Headroom, and I sat in a room with all of the Max Headroom, everyone except for Matt Frewer, and we did a roundtable. And it, it's a show that was so ahead of its time and so amazing. And, and when you actually think about there were two sci-fi shows in, that premiered in 1987. Um, one of them changed the face of popular culture, and the other one was Star Trek The Next Generation. And Max Headroom, when, when you talk to TV, a lot of people who work in sci-fi and TV, that's the show they go back to because it was so unique and weird and distinct in its voice that it really made a mark. What about you? What are some? There's, uh, uh, Terriers was great. I always watch what Kevin does because I think he's a great showrunner, much like me. Um, <laughs> what are some? Cop Rock. Ooh. I fucking hated Cop Rock. <laughs> I, I fucking hated it. And it deserved not to make a season, in my opinion. What, el what else you got? <laughs> I hate musical theater. I hate musicals. I hate people bursting into song in the middle of a perfectly good play. <laughs> I, I, I was just saying it. I didn't, I didn't really like what, it. What, what are some other sing single... Uh, Seinfeld? <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's off the air now. I was ready to be angry that um, the Carmichael show didn't get a second year, but it did, so uh, I loved that show. I was ready to uh, be so angry the, that uh, Catastrophe didn't get a second year. Firefly is, I think, famously one Firefly. season. Oh, Firefly. Freaks and Geeks was famously. Oh, my God, Geeks, you're good yeah. at this. I was going to say that. <laughs> These um, are good shows. These are really good My shows. wife would like me to add Bunheads to the list. Bunheads, uh, Bunheads yes. Bunheads has a lot of fans. My So-Called Life. So what? My so-called life. So that life. was one season. One and out. Yeah. Uh, vinyl. That's a joke. Sorry. Uh, uh, a show that that I that I worked on that Graham Yost uh, created called so Boomtown. True, Town. De True Detective. Boomtown. Yeah. True, oh yeah. It, oh, yeah. True Detective was a one-season show. Oh. Oh. I like one-season shows really a lot. <laughs> you know what I do though? 
I'm not a very loyal viewer. So what I do is I have, the show has to go five seasons, and then I'll start. To, then I'll just binge it. Yeah. So it's that's why when I go into develop shows, they go well. That, we did that like five years ago. So I'm a little bit slow, but <laughs> but that's why I don't have any off the top of my head. But Freaks and Geeks was was a good one too. Uh, I did. I had a great time running that show. Um, <laughs> And now I have Ghostbusters coming up. <laughs> I'm Paul Feig. Hi. And what shows are you watching now that you like? I went through a protracted period of grieving after Mad Men uh, got off the air, so like I didn't watch anything for a year because, like, I mean, how does that show? It's like, uh, so. Um, but uh, I hate Mad Men. Really? Yeah. No, that's okay. But they never burst into song. I think it's the best um, production design show on the planet. Well. It, and great, brilliantly directed and acted, and boy, I don't have the patience to no, sit but, through but, that. But here's the deal. I'm, no, no, I, I'm, the thing is, I'm Puerto Rican, you know? And for example, you see a show like Jane the Virgin, and it's like, oh, aren't Latinos colorful and passionate and awesome? And for me, having grown up in that culture, like, repressed white people are like catnip. <laughs> it's... it's it's such a greatest. I'm just like, wow, these people aren't loud or talking about their feelings. I love this. So, but that, uh, uh, and, and which is also why the last show I binged was the girlfriend experience. It's, it is, uh, it is ice cold. I mean, it's like you really these white people are so repressed. It's, they're you like must the, have loved that. There's oh, not an they're emotion. so repressed. There's yeah, not an like, emotion yeah, there. Cold steel. Um, and uh, yeah, so something. I like, like Better Call Saul. I like Vince Gilligan. I just I always find that the way, he, just the way they, they, they're like Swiss watches, the way they break their seasons and their shows, right down to like every shot they put in there. It's just, I just admire the storytelling of, of the... That of, could of go it. a little quicker for me. You hate it probably, right? I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I hate Mad Men. I'm not proud of that. It's like saying you hate the Beatles. Uh, but what, what do you like? I know, we um, haven't gotten to anything you like yet. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I'm not letting you get away with Bridget, this. You're going to have to help me. I think Silicon Valley is awesome. Um, I love Catastrophe. Catastrophe is very funny. Um, I'm, I'm really loving something right now called The Last Panthers. Um, I think it's an IFC series. Um, help me, Bridget. I can help you in five years. <laughs> can I be like the total outlier in terms of one-season shows per year? Uh, yes. I'm the one, apparently the one person who liked the second season of True Detective. Um, there was oh okay there was like there was like a really loud droning sound in the background the whole time and and the white people didn't get passionate until they hit each other so it had like the best thing like like yeah inarticulate white people hitting and droning it was amazing you know so this is clearly a therapy session it really the is the theme continues <laughs> I am in a uh, god this is going to sound uh, odd I am in a secret Santa group with a <laughs> with 15 writers that include D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, so my answer will be Game of Thrones because they need the promotion, too. Um, and last and this year, is being filmed. Two, two years ago, I got a severed arm that had been a prop on uh, Game of Thrones, uh, which I, uh, can, uh, I have around my house in case I want to scare the shit out of people. I just like... and Because it, it is incredibly lifelike, uh, and it just sort of sits there, like, oh, there's the arm. And... Better than Ned Stark's head. And, and they're both going to be so much richer than I am ever will be that I want to stay very, very close that, with them. That show has to make some money. Yeah. That's an expensive show. That is an expensive show. Uh, I feel bad for them, though, because of the lack of validation. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> I see them in the waiting room of my shrink's office. Art, do you hate it? No. I, no, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. 
I should, I'm going to add this. This no, like Mad it. Men thing is going to come and bite me in the ass. <laughs> well, it's funny. One of the writers on pitch is, is, was on Mad Men. So I'll bring that to him. Wait, wait, wait. One of the writers that we have on pitch, okay. Jonathan Eglow, was, was Tony on Tony Bell Mad a, a producer on pitch? Tony Bell is. Tony okay. Bell, the legendary Hollywood producer. Yeah, let's just talk about Tony Bell for a while. Of Sting, <laughs> of Sting. yes. An was. actor from uh, Shampoo and uh, yeah, Come Blow Your Horn. Um, I feel like you have a lot of stuff in your head. Yeah, there's a lot uh, going on. <laughs> but mostly it's the theme from Rudy. Uh, you're from Puerto Rico. Yes, sir, I am. Okay. English is not my first language. I only make a living with it. You can talk it so fast. <laughs> that was the secret to the middleman. The characters were all like overeducated, neurotic Puerto Ricans, but they were in English, so nobody figured that out. It was, you know... <laughs> All right. I want to give you guys a chance to ask some questions. So, or talk about your own experiences in psychotherapy. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi. Uh, my question is for Hart. You said that you came from the, oh, no. um, the network side. So my question to you is, do you, does that affect the way that you write shows? And would you say that perspective helps you or hinders you? Um, I uh, take everything I say with a grain of salt. I think that writing a network show is the toughest game. There's so many of them. You do it at a flat-out run. Uh, you don't have any time, and you, you're not um, uh, drenched in money. So um, I, I do like writers who have gone through the network thing. I will never do it again. Uh, Bones was a gift from heaven that I don't have to write a 22-episode uh, show again. It's really it's really hard work. It's, um, I wouldn't know, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, it, but it is. Because 10 are really hard. So yeah, yeah. the fact that you do 22 is yeah, yeah, Around about episode 18, it's like the wall in a marathon. It's very tough. Yes, it does affect my way of writing. The two things that I'm working on now, I have to go, oh, I, can, I, I, I have other options here. I can slow down a little and uh, do a little more character stuff. But uh, it's, um, um, this has been my year of... of that's why I left the overall deal, so that I could just step away and, and try um, something new. But so far, it's been delightful. Um, but I have, uh, you know, all the respect in the world for um, network TV writers, because it's, um, uh, they, you, you get money, but you don't get much love, um, except from your fans. Um, and you get a lot of love from your fans. But, uh, you know... Um, You'll notice, that, for example, that critics, um, sometimes when they're criticizing a network show, they're criticizing network shows and uh, without saying, well, this is what it has to be, because uh, they don't like it, um, but the, the audience does. I feel like I've rattled on, too. I feel a little Who is the critic who only watched the first eight minutes? Um, I, I, thank that's God a, I don't remember. It's a responsible uh, professional. Um, um, yeah, exactly. It was an, uh, and, and, to, and to print that, I only watched the first eight minutes. Right. It's like, hey, my character. Well, when I print, I'm it guilty wasn't of my practice. Right? It wasn't me. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. I'm so glad. Okay. Um, I, I can't remember, and I'm really glad I can't remember. All right, next question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with the exception of Pop Rock, what's the one series that you guys are happy only lasted one season? You know, the thing is, most of them fail. So, I mean, it's like so few shows actually succeed that, you know, like... like I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, but, but I'm not, you know, I got to say, I'm not much for hate watching. 
You know, because it's like, uh, uh, it's like, uh, I don't know, like I have a kid now and stuff, and I, I mean, I feel sad for her. Uh, and <laughs> you know, but like I don't know. It, it, it seems like like hate watching or actively hating a television show too much can be deleterious to your health. I mean, I don't know. Although some shows do feel like an insult, don't they? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I'll name no names. They might hire me next year. <laughs> I, I find this. I, I seldom, believe it or not, I seldom hate things either because I know how hard it is. I don't. I, I. Every once in a while, I hate something. I'm old. Um, <laughs> But what I do, I do find myself getting angry. This is psychological. No, I, um, I get angry when I feel something is being praised. I feel that a number of, that I'm not going to say any more of them, but a number of shows that the critics absolutely love, I go, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and I, but that's, half of that is my feeling about the show, which can, oh, I'll, I'll say one. I'll say one. Um, Downton Abbey. Um, that was a gas. Do you think the critics really love that? No, no. Downton Abbey is okay. I don't think the critics love it. I think the critics. Oh are my new. God! The critics love Downton Abbey. It's one of the, the you know, and that makes me mad because I think it's fine. I think it's fine. It is what it is. It's a soap opera. You don't have to be consistent with characters. Um, um, but then I get mad and say, um, my lovely wife, who loves the show, is trying to watch it, and I'm screaming, why did you do that? What the fuck? Um, I feel like I've talked to you. I, no, see, I, I, I adored that show until I realized that it just Julian Fellows loves Lady Mary and hates Lady Edith, and that the whole show was about ladling punishment on Lady Edith for the yeah. crime of not being Lady Mary and that yeah. Lady Mary could basically fuck anyone over yeah. and like and, 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 and Julian Fellows and I'm like look dude I don't know what kind of unexamined childhood shit you're working out here but Lady Edith is a competent magazine editor and she still can't find happiness you're, you're an asshole yeah so I actually made Team I made Lady Edith so I, I no no I made, I did two things I'm sorry this has become now that we're in therapy fuck it um <laughs> I, I did two things. One, I wrote a meme that was a picture of Laura Carmichael, and it literally said, no Edith, no peace. And um, it, it didn't go viral, but I, I really meant it. And then the other one was, I wrote a 17-page uh, Downton Abbey fanfic where Lady, where Lady Edith goes to Bombay to do a, a, a story for the, for the magazine and winds up having an adventure with Indiana Jones. Who, who is the right age... And, and, and she had, no, I, I looked this up, I looked this up, who would have been totally the right age, and who was on the Titanic with her cousins who died in the Downton Abbey pilot, and who had, and, and in my story, in my fanfic, had met Lady Edith at a party at the house of the guy from The Remains of the Day. <laughs> I feel a little strongly about those particular repressed people. I, I think we're just going to go to the next question. I don't think anyone wants to follow that. It's on my Tumblr. Go look it up. It's kind of awesome. Um, yeah. Are there any shows that like ended abruptly in one season with the cliffhanger that you're still like stuck on, like, what happened? Or that you're just like exceptionally bitter and got cut off at one season, aside from your own? Oh. See, this, this is the kind of thing when my mind just goes blank. I needed, I needed Ted to tell me all the shows. I never saw Game of Silence. Um, wait, is that a show? Is that the, is that the new show with uh, the guy who was in Terriers? Nobody watches that guy. Yeah. 
No, I was about to say my my uh, my uh, the, my most hated season closer was Downton Abbey because when he closed, uh, I stopped watching after season one because he got the news that World War One has broken out and it's sort of like well uh, that's not much of a cliffhanger I know that the war gets fought um, and I have a beef with that show because Maggie Smith and I had an intense sexual relationship about four years ago. And then she, like, she got that job, and she was gone. No, I hear she's a real bobcat in the sack, so I can totally oh. feel your pain, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was going to make a prime of Miss Jean Brody joke, but... <laughs> Thank you, there. In front. She's no Joan Plowright, but I think... <laughs> I was uh, sleeping with Maureen Stapleton briefly. <laughs> for, sorry, I think the right, end we'll of bu- the next question, I think, I I think the end of Bunheads was a calamity, and and honestly, like I think that that there should be like a national Amy Sherman Palladino bully pulpit act anyway that just gives her money to do whatever the hell she wants, and uh, yeah, and Bunheads, Bunheads ending with her macing uh, all of the kids in the in the production of the Nutcracker and then p- being kicked out of town. Like I was like, what? I gotta know. So, yeah. All right. Next question. Hi. I'm Nikki Tomlinson, and I want to join the group therapy session because I just had the great misfortune and heartbreaking experience of acting on Game of Silence, which you never saw. Um, <laughs> but you can check oh, it out. We have real. season one. <laughs> yeah. um, and I just want to hear your thoughts. I think I, I'm a lowly actor, so I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. But I think Sony's still in the process of shopping it around to different platforms. Um, but I seem to hear a lot of different platforms not want to develop content that, that's already out there, even though we have a good audience and our three-point-some million viewers that we had consistently is good for a lot of cable networks and platforms, I seem to hear them saying they would rather start from scratch. And I just want to hear your thoughts on why, why they... If they have an audience, why do they want to start from scratch? What are your ideas? They get more money. Uh, if you start from scratch... If, they, if, you, if uh, one platform picks up another platform's show, they got to share income and uh, so they, they're balancing the amount in the audience versus how much of their profits they're going to have to give up. There's, there's increasing pressure everywhere to have it vertically integrated um, that, that you know as, if a studio we worked uh, for 20th Century Fox they wanted us to develop for Fox first and foremost and if you're on another platform, if your studio is in one company and your network is in another, then when it comes time to decide what to cancel, they're going to keep their own show that is doing slightly worse rather than... Uh, I got, I got no, bored. Politically, also, if I'm a, an executive, uh, if I take the chance on picking up your show, which has somebody else's uh, has axed, if it doesn't work for me, I look like an idiot. If it does work for me, then I just took somebody else's good idea and kept financing it, so I actually don't get that much credit for the upside and uh, uh, probably look bad if, uh, if it doesn't play out. So it's a political... Um, it's not a great gamble. Um. <laughs> and you also know the maximum potential. like a new show may hit another number that could be higher, whereas you, know, you only know that you're only going to hit three. You're not going to suddenly find new viewers that are out there somewhere. But, but there is one story that, that gainsays the entire thing. It was um, my first year in the business. I was a junior executive at NBC. 
Um, and I was working, uh, actually Kevin Riley was the head of development, and NBC developed a show called JAG. Um, and, uh, and they aired it, and they just weren't happy with it, and they felt it was off-brand, and you know, CBS picked it up, and uh, well, uh, <laughs> 25 years later, uh, there are three spin-offs, and, um, and it's called and, NCIS. Yeah, and, and, and CIS, NCIS LA, and NCIS uh, New Orleans, and JAG ran for 11 years. So sometimes that does work out, but there's a question, what, what you just said, which is pride of ownership, which is, if we didn't make it, then why would we buy somebody else's sloppy seconds? And that's like a, that's like a huge thing with networks. Next question. Thanks. Um, this starts as a question for Ted. Um, with uh, Terriers, um, you know, when it starts out in the season, it, it seems like it's, it seems like, you know, it's kind of two buddy guys who are like going through some, you know, sort of minor adventures and then everything really ratchets up, you know, towards the end of the season. Um, I'm wondering if any of that storytelling had to do with seeing some writing on the wall or if that was your plan from the beginning. And well, it wasn't the plan from the beginning because we were really kind of making it up as we went along. But uh, we had uh, sh- shot and we were done with the season before we aired the first one. So it was just uh, trying to come up with the best story. But it wasn't um, the last episode is, was called Hail Mary because of what the characters were going through. And then it turned out to be that in the show of like, well, <laughs> maybe we'll get a six million. <laughs> maybe we'll get a stupid rating on this. But uh, uh but I guess we were, uh, yes, lucky enough to be immune to ratings while we were making it because we uh, it didn't. I can't imagine doing a show and then coming to work on a Monday after um, getting lousy ratings. Uh, it's like doing theater and you get bad reviews and have to keep doing it. I, I worked on a show called Jake 2.0, which was created by a gentleman named Silvio Orta, who then went on to create Ugly Betty. And I actually worked on his first two shows, both of which were one-season shows. And... Um, and on a Wednesday night uh, in, in, I think, late January of 2004, um, the, the UPN network, uh, which was where we were on, showed an episode of America's Next Top Model, a rerun. In our t- we were preempted, and they showed a rerun of America's Next Top Model and, uh, in our time slot, and that show did twice our rating. Um, so the next day, um, we, co- we showed up to work, and at around 11.30... Uh, David Greenwald pops his head out of the house office and goes, oh, hey guys, can you all uh, come into my office for a second? And, and I went, uh, why David, are we canceled? And then there was like a long silence. And then we literally had our offices on those brown uh, boxes that are synonymous with failure. Uh, and we left and by 4.30 that day, we were out. Um, and then the next week I got a call about this weird J.J. Abrams pilot that had been greenlit off an outline called Lost. So I guess it worked out, but, <laughs> but that's what that feels like. <laughs> there are a few things worse than going to a cast and crew and a writer's room to say, pack up your stuff, we're going home, because it's your fault. Uh, if you're the showrunner, it's your fault. And it's just, you've got pregnant people, you've got oh, people, oh, it's terrible. But did you all get to write the finale you wanted to write? Or did the show just ended? Show. Well, I, they ran my... I was hoping for back nine. and uh, In both of them. In both of them. Actually, you know what? In Backstrom, um, I, was, I had learned from uh, Finder, so the last episode that you see in Backstrom, he goes to AA. And I had a plan for him to subvert that, because he's a drunk. 
Um, but if, if you just watch that, you think, okay, he's going to be all right. So at least the audience of Backstrom was happier than the audience for The Finder. I, I had a weird choice that was given to me on The Middleman, which was, so I get this call from the president of the network, and he says, you're, you're, you're $5,000 over budget on every one of your 12 episodes. And I said, build me a statue. Because 5000 over budget on any television show is a laudable accomplishment. I mean, like, and he goes, well, on, on, a, on a CBS show, yes. On ABC Family, that means we don't get to make one of our pilots. So, because uh, the margins are much lower. So he says, so we're going to give you a choice. I was actually, she was Kate Jurgens, the, the senior vice president of the, of, of the company. She says, we're going to give you a choice. You can either uh, finish the show at 12 episodes, and we'll give you an extra day and an extra $100,000 to make episode 12 extra fancy, or you can do the season finale uh, that you've already written, um, but you have to shoot it in six days. And most shows have eight days to shoot. We had seven because we were ultra low budget. And I was going to direct it, and it was the first TV thing I was ever going to direct. And I was like, oh, my God. Like I, and, and I really went, you know, and I went over it with, with, the, with the staff. I mean, we t- there, were, there were therapy sessions we had because I, I didn't want people to lose a job. But on the other chance, having to do, like, a, a, you know, a, a series finale in six days is a tall order. Um, so, you know, we all just, you know, we decided to go ahead and cancel, like, we got to, we canceled our own show, you know, we got to say what, and, and, and we did episode 12, but what I, what I did was, because I knew about the, pro, the, 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 the cost margins of comic books, in the DVD deal, there was a, there was a, a small bit of money that was put aside to make a comic book of the season finale. So when the DVD came out, then the season finale actually came out as a comic book, and, and then we did a live reading of it at Comic-Con. So in its own weird way, the show sort of lived on afterwards, and we were able to do that. Kevin, what about you? Did you get to write the finale you wanted to write? Uh, certainly. Actually, for, for Journeyman, for sure, even Minority Report, we were able to, to write the finale. I, I remember, I remember it, was the, it was the writer's strike, so we were, try, we were under the gun trying to finish it. I knew how I wanted to finish it, but finishing it was, was difficult with the, with the time. Left, and then I left, and, but they also just pulled the money out of producing the last few. Uh, and someone told me this year, there was a post guy who said, I love Journeyman, I, I watched the finale. Did, were you aware that in the shot where there's just this couple dances at the end, it's kind of a big uh, moment in the show, and she says, yeah, I can see your focus puller and your cameraman in the corner. And the idea was that in post they were going to race it, but they already knew the show was off, so they didn't spend the money. <laughs> So I thought, oh, great, okay. So I have to go back and look at that. I had never seen it. But I did get to it. The story made sense, except for the focus puller. Story. It's very meta. <laughs> right. It's very meta. Right on that note, we're going to have to end it. But thank you guys so much Thanks for coming. You guys. Thank you Thanks very much. to all of you. Really appreciate it. And here's to your next hit. Now leaving Nerdist.com.